0: Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.
1: One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com.
2: Welcome to Unscrewed, the show that knows that real liberation includes sexual liberation. I'm your host, Jacqueline Friedman. And I am thrilled to welcome to the show this week sex educator, social worker, and activist, Ida Mantele. Ida has her fingers in a lot of pies when it comes to unfucking the sexual culture, from helping to run the Women of Color Sexual Health Network to working one-on-one with individual clients to doing more traditional sex ed to doing activist and advocacy work in a lot of different communities. And she brings to it a kind of non-binary, compassionate, and thoughtfulness that's unfortunately all too rare to find. Ida, thanks for coming on the
1: show. Thank you. It's
2: a pleasure to be here with you. Thrilled to have you, as you know, but our listeners don't. I asked you here because you wrote a really wonderful essay uh, in the wake of David Bowie's death about how to think about it when basically our fave is problematic. <laughs> so yep. th- that's going to be the subject today. What? How do you deal when your fave is problematic around sex and sexuality? But before that, I want to g- give listeners a chance to yeah, get to know you a little. So because this show is produced by The Establishment, and that is abbreviated EST, I want to do a little lightning round of superlatives, words that end in Est. So real short answers, is whatever comes off the top of your head. You ready? Yes. What's been making you the happiest lately?
1: I have a cute new person in my life <gasps> and we are going uh, on dates. <laughs> Aww, yay. <laughs> I How- feel like a 12 year old and it's excellent. That is totally
2: excellent. Um, what's the best sex advice you've ever received?
1: That you have to make it a conversation with the person. And that it's not just you coming in with a preconceived notion. So actually the metaphor of sex as a jam, like a, like a jam session with instruments, is one of my favorite analogies ever for sex. Yes.
2: What is the sexuality-related news
1: that's making you the maddest or saddest lately? The maddest or saddest? Um, there was a case, this is related to sexuality in terms of gender, um, there was a case of someone named Caden, who was shot by police, Um, and they were a transgender man who had Asperger's, and a lot of the media coverage of that situation has been misgendering Caden. And so that's making me really sad, because not only is it police brutality, but also it's a lot of, you know, transphobia embedded in one story, and it's just really, really sad and unacceptable.
2: (sighs) That is unacceptable and very awful. Um what's the biggest sex myth that you once believed
1: the the biggest sex myth um that I remember hearing when I was little was that if you masturbated it meant you had you were losing your virginity and you know now i think of losing your virginity as something that people decide on their own what that means for them but i remember being small and overhearing a conversation uh between some of my family members and i was like oh no I'm not a virgin anymore. Uh, this is terrible. What will my family think? And it was just either a misunderstanding or a very re- weird understanding of scripture um, because I was raised to Jehovah's Witness. So that was a that was something I believed for a while until I found out more information about sexuality.
2: That's intense. Yep, I was like, ah,
1: oh, I screwed it. I screwed up. I screwed up so early. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and did you feel like? Well now it's all fucked I might as well do whatever I want Or did you just feel like really like tons of shame
1: <laughs> I think there was just like a panic moment Got it Um, But my high school career was not uh, Was not known for sexy times So I didn't really <laughs> I didn't really get a chance to explore much of that Beyond you know what I did with myself Got it
3: Alright
2: who is the bravest person you can think of Who's working to unscrew our sexual culture in some way
1: Ooh, it's gonna be a it's gonna be a colleague of mine, uh, Bianca Laureano. And part of why I think she's so brave is because she is so real, and she is a very strategic person for sure. But she's doing so much work in terms of intersectionality, racial justice, bringing up Afro Latinos and discussions of sexuality in a very like no BS approach. And I think that's really admirable because so many people tiptoe around these issues, and she's like, nope. Straight up telling you how it is.
2: Amazing. Excellent. All right. Are you ready to talk about David Bowie? I am. (laughs) (laughs) Am I ready to talk about David Bowie? Uh, So uh, let's recap. David Bowie died last month. And on the day that he died, information started circulating on the social medias Uh, about two things one was a a rape case that actually went to court uh, but was dismissed was it dismissed or he was cleared
1: as per the article from from the dallas newspaper it says that he was cleared of assault charges but as we know just because someone was
2: cleared does not mean an assault didn't happen Um, But also, and this has been confirmed, the story is actually told by the now woman in question, that he committed statutory rape on a 13, 14 year old girl who at the time was consenting. Right. She was happy to be there, but also was significantly underage. So it was a lot to process. I mean, responses were all over the map. In terms of how do we deal with the fact that David Bowie, who meant so much to so many and and was a queer trailblazer and made queer lives possible at a time when there was no one like him, might also be someone who did not respect women's sexual boundaries Um, and who certainly didn't respect that this girl was a young teenager. And so you wrote this wonderful piece Basically saying like, hey, this is hard. And I wonder if you could just like walk people a little bit through what was happening for you that day and what led you to write the piece.
1: Yeah. So I, you know, knew David Bowie as that person who was in Labyrinth, whose piece mesmerized me as a child. But as it should. Yeah, right. It's mesmerizing everyone. Um, but I didn't have a huge personal investment in him as an artist. I knew that he meant a lot to other people. But I didn't have a particular connection. Where this really became important to me though is when I realized how big of a deal it was for my communities. So I was seeing two parallel dialogues going on in communities of color primarily where there was a lot of anger at the kind of mourn- mourning that was happening um, that was erasing kind of any wrongdoing that was elevating Bowie to this you know godlike status without acknowledging things that he'd done around race or religion or gender that were kind of problematic. And there was this other dialogue in queer and trans spaces, mostly uh, full of white folks, but not exclusively so. And all these trans and queer people were really, really sad and really upset that someone who'd been such a cultural icon was gone. And so I was seeing these two communities that had some overlap, but were kind of speaking in very different ways. Um, It it felt like people had to either be angry or be sad. And you couldn't be both because apparently humans are not complex enough to have more than one emotion. So I was like, okay, I need to do something for my people, for my communities. I didn't expect it to get as big as it did. um, But, you know, I'm glad that it was able to contribute to a larger narrative and discussion about the issue. Well, I think the reason it did
2: travel as far as it did is because it was a bridge, right? It didn't say you suck if your primary feeling right now is grief and you can't deal with the other stuff right now and it didn't say like you're a heartless asshole if you're only angry and you know that that supersedes whatever grief you might have otherwise felt it sort of said this shit's complicated right like and and that is I think the heart of the the your fave is problematic conversation right because these conversations happen all the time right like look at the conversations about Bill Cosby right <laughs> look,
3: mm-hmm.
2: look at the conversations about like anybody like I think about Tina Fey right like A lot of stuff Tina Fey does I think is A, funny, and B, sometimes kind of like great feminist stuff. At the same time, she can be kind of slut-shaming, especially when it comes to pitting what she perceives as classy women with actual lower class or working class women like she did in Baby Mama, like she did after the Sandra Bullock divorce, talking about the woman that Bullock's husband left her for uh, and her tattoos and stuff, you know, you sort of see it throughout her work. Your fave is problematic is a really common trope for a reason, which is everybody's problematic, right? Like, I'm fucking problematic. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you seem perfectly lovely, but I suspect you might be problematic too once in a while. For sure, for sure. And so we find you find out your fave is problematic there's that really normal response, which is like, that can't be so, or there must be some mitigating circumstances that makes this okay, right? Because you they're your fave, right? You love that person or that show or whatever it is. You have a strong emotional attachment to it. Um and that sometimes get helps gets in the way of us thinking clearly about shit, right? Like, you know, about Bill Cosby and the number of people who defended him for how long? Um, in the face of how much evidence? So there's that emotional response. But at the same time, like, is the answer always, like, burn it to the
1: ground? Yeah, I feel like the answer is never burn it to the ground. (laughs) Beyond every icon, there's a person. And, you know, as much as we may get this sublimated ideal of who they are, we have to remember that there's a person behind that that has faults, poops, has, you know, bad hair days. We need to move past this idea of... You did a bad thing once, therefore we must never speak of you again and you must be booted off the island forever because that leaves no room for growth, that leaves no room for transformation, that doesn't allow for social change, honestly. And at the same time, we need to understand that coming from a perspective of radical love and transformation and all of that, A, may sound nice, but is really difficult to do in practice, and B is not the same as saying, oh, well, now you have to love everyone because if everyone's problematic, then no one's problematic. Right. And I think that's where people get really stuck. They're like, oh, you know, if everyone's problematic, then why should we be critiquing anyone in the first place?
2: Well, I also think there are different lines for different people, right? So for me, like Woody Allen can't do it anymore. And I love some of his earlier movies, right? Like Annie Hall used to be a huge favorite for me. Um, and, and I could name others, but like at this point, I can't encounter any of his shit. I definitely don't want him to have any of my money. Like I just can't with Woody Allen anymore. Um, same with Bill Cosby. Right. But I don't feel that way about David Bowie. I feel like like there's an asterisk, right? Like I, I listen to it and I think. Oh, I love this song. And then I also think, oh, God, that stuff is problematic. Um, But I don't feel like oh, I can't with David Bowie. And I wonder, I wish I had more insight myself into like, what's the difference?
1: Not always, but a big difference is usually identity. So one thing that I think is really important as people navigate these issues is thinking about how is it different if this person does it than if another star does it? Would I react differently? And if so, why? what kind of structural inequalities are playing into my perception, are playing into my dismissal of certain charges or dismissal of certain communities crying out for justice.
2: I think about R. Kelly when I think mm-hmm. about David Bowie, who, and I'm not, I mean, I was never actually an R. Kelly fan, which is why it's easier for me to think about him, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but so I'm not as familiar with the charges, but my awareness is that he he's mostly charged with statutory rape right Mm -hmm. um so there seems to be consensus at least in the circles that i run in that like r kelly is dead to the world yet david bowie is a much more
1: nuanced case and i think about that yeah and that's that's one of the cases that has gotten brought up a lot i think part of it is also related to the idea of the time at which things happened with david bowie Um, And how there is this idea of, oh, there's, you know, sex, drugs, rock and roll. Everyone was high all the time. I think that the genre of rock and the idea of, you know, wanting to have sex with a rock star are really prevalent and don't necessarily translate to other genres like rap. So there's a lot more cultural... Disdain, I would say, for rap artists in that, you know, if we're if we're talking about that particular piece of the statutory rape and sort of who they can have or not have sex with. And part of it again is that we're embedded in a white supremacist system. So anything that has to do with people of color and particularly with black people is systematically seen as worse. I think part of it is also that, you know, David Bowie touched a lot of lives in different and more substantial ways than R. Kelly did. So there's a lot more maybe love. Uh, Exactly. It's more like, oh, you did so many good things. And there's less of that for R. Kelly. And also just based on how he he has treated women in interviews and things like that. Um, He was recently on a Huffington Post segment that I was like, wow, you did not let this woman say two words before you just started disrespecting her. So there's you know, there's a lot at play there with that case, too.
2: Right. So he has a, a different pattern than we might see in David Bowie.
1: Exactly. And that's also something that came up for a lot of people. They were like, you know, well, this claim is really, really old and he never did anything like that again. I'm like, yeah, I mean, that's important to bring up. So, you know, in any critique of David Bowie or anyone else, we we have to look at patterns. Is this something that they made a habit of? Is this something that happened multiple times? Each individual action is still bad. But if we find that it is a bigger pattern, there is a higher level of toxicity that you are adding to the world. And that's actually something that, you know, I I like to have people think about. And I'm actually going to quote a real quick, um, Ralph Rodriguez, a professor of mine from when I was at Brown University, who wrote about radical love. And I just, you know, adore his sentiments on it. He mentioned that, as we talk about radical love, as we talk about, you know, everyone's problematic, we have to understand that there may be moments where the level of and I quote, toxicity reaches such a level that out of self-care and self-love one has to pull back and find new alliances end quote and it's this idea that just because you know you want to be coming from a place of love and acceptance it doesn't mean that you have to let everyone into your circle it doesn't mean that you have to give everyone a platform and so all of us have to figure out for ourselves and for our work you know, especially if we have a platform, you know, like you have here, who are we inviting on? Who are we uplifting? And that's really the question that that becomes really important for people who have power. And it doesn't mean that you have to, you know, say this person should die. But are you going to give them your airtime? Are you going to give them money? How how if at all are you going to support them?
2: All right. All of that sounds super awesome. But I want to know how you do it in practice. Who are your faves who are problematic (laughs) Or, or former faves that you can't anymore
1: with? let me think let me think um oh i'll I'll give you i'll give you a quick one here um chris hemsworth the actor who plays thor in the marvel movies he is very pretty so pretty so he i think is you know delightful eye candy um and i recently heard that he'd dressed up as a native american um for halloween or something with his wife also i think dressed up as a native american at this costume party and i'm like oh, why Chris Hemsworth? Why? Um, It doesn't mean that I won't see his movies or that I hate him as a human. I just think that, you know, that was misguided. I hope you learn from this. I hope people call you out on it. And for me, it's a matter of appreciating what I already appreciate in a person, whether they're someone that I'm friends with or just a star that I happen to see in movies. While also making sure to not make excuses for them, we we feel that we have to defend our problematic faves, you know, with with our lives. We have to like it's our a lives team sport, yeah. Exactly. I'm like they don't even know you exist, first of all. I care much less about intent when it comes to stars. I care more about impact. Hopefully, their intent was not terrible. But if it was, or if it wasn't, you still have the impact that they left in the world.
2: But would you still bone Chris Hemsworth if given the chance?
3: (laughs) Probably. (laughs) Hold up. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for
2: a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Well, and I also think that question of accountability weighs here, right? Like, if somebody does something problematic and they acknowledge it, and try to make amends and then don't have a pattern of doing it again is different than if they refuse to acknowledge it exactly and there are shades of gray in the middle obviously
1: and age plays a role in it too you know are we are we holding people to things they said when they were 18 and now they're in their mid to late 20s we all have to grow um and it's a matter of how we contextualize it and how we leave room for that growth While not just giving people a pass to just say whatever they want, because it was just a few years ago.
2: Although age sometimes cuts the other way, too. You know, when I I see sort of like older feminists who say super problematic shit, like uh, Dr. Ruth last year said that um, basically if you're already naked with someone, you can't withdraw consent. Do you remember that? yeah (laughs) and people were like well she's of a different generation and i don't buy that ish at all like maybe if that's what she wants to believe in her private heart because that's how she was raised it's one thing but for her to be held up as an advocate or an expert you know like she's gotta have her shit together
1: and i think that again this is where we need to find balance because We can't erase the contributions that Betty Dodson, Gloria Steinem, all these people have made. But at the same time, that does not mean that we just don't get to critique them because they were, you know, the foremothers of feminism. So we need to be able to hold them accountable and critique them for the problematic things that they're saying while understanding where they're coming from. I
2: I also want to talk about how the conversation goes when people are problematic. So recently, as I'm sure you know, Uh, Gloria Steinem said that young women are breaking for Bernie Sanders because that's where the boys are. Mm -hmm. And I criticized that. I thought pretty respectfully. On Twitter, I basically said, like, this is condescending and reductive. Is this really how you think about young women? I think it's literally what I just tweeted at her. And I was so frustrated because so many people jumped on that as a way to sort of like burn Steinem to the ground right like she's garbage the second wave is finished like blah 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 who gives us you know like and um, and I was like no like that's not what I meant at all like can't we Critique, and then I got a whole bunch of misogynist shit too. Like, yeah, old women are worthless, and love, you know, it was like no good deed goes unpunished, right? Like, it was a very straightforward criticism of one thing that became like instantly polarizing and everybody went to sort of like the absolute extreme with it. And I wound up like spending more time defending Steinem on Twitter than I had critiquing her because I didn't want to see all this sort of misogyny and ageism slung at her at the same time as I really did think what she said was horrible. I mean, I feel like part of my struggle with a sort of like your favorite problematic conversation is that it so frequently goes to the burn it down place like immediately.
1: Yeah. And I've had this very similar experience when I wrote the David Bowie article, because the reason I wrote it initially was because I was seeing so many people angry at the grief. And I was like, whoa, 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 we need space for grief. Calm down. We need to talk about both of these. And I ended up getting way more pushback from the people that um I wasn't necessarily writing for in the first place. I got a lot of people saying, "Well, you know, she clearly wanted it. It wasn't rape. Like he didn't do this. He was cleared. Like who are you to judge?" and a lot of misogyny, a lot of rape apologism and, you know, people completely missing the point. And so I feel you on that kind of no good deed goes unpunished thing. I think a way to mitigate that beyond, you know, having language whenever we critique that reminds people, you know, this is not an invitation to burn this person to the ground, is making a habit of having conversations about things like radical love, about transformative justice, about accountability that doesn't depend on complete radical exclusion, having those conversations more regularly and making them part of our general vocabulary so that it doesn't just have to come up when we're critiquing someone, but that we're giving people tools and giving people advice and sort of making them more, I want to say the word indoctrinating, but
0: that's
1: the most approximate word. Let's indoctrinate. As long as it's good shit, I'm all
2: for indoctrination. Exactly.
1: Like, let's indoctrinate people into, like, being good human.
2: Can you say, I'm I'm familiar with the ideas of transformative and restorative justice, but I'm less familiar with what you mean by radical love.
1: Yeah, so the idea of radical love, the way that I heard about it was through this professor, Ralph Rodriguez, at Brown University, and the way the way that he described it really resonated with me because it was this idea that for any meaningful social change that we want to make in the world, we have to be coming from a place of radical love. Like we have to be able to, even if we don't like someone, to love them, uh, which is, I think, a hard concept for a lot of people to understand. But an analogy that I think is helpful is think of your family or think of your friends. Do you like your family and your friends all the time? Probably not. (laughs) Probably not. But do you have an underlying trust or an underlying love for them? Probably yes. So we need to be able to hold this idea of I love you and I validate your dignity and humanity, even if I don't personally like you Um, and that we have to come from that place to do any meaningful work, because otherwise we treat people like they're disposable and like they don't matter. Although some people don't have love for their family
2: members if they've been abusive or violent some people really do cut off their family for reasons i think are valid i think there also have to be sometimes when we don't act from radical
1: love and more act for radical love from ourselves like we all have to be able to have that line when toxicity and when negativity reaches a certain level that we find unacceptable part of radical love part of self-care part of self-love is to pull back, is to cut certain people off from our lives. Um, But that doesn't mean that we are saying that they are disposable as a human and that they have no dignity. So
2: what do you think about people who took pleasure in watching Cosby get brought in by the police?
1: I think that's a super legitimate reaction because what hopefully (laughs) they're reacting to is not, yeah, black man getting apprehended by police. What I hope that they're reacting to is, Yes, some level of justice is being served. Some level of acknowledgement for rape is happening. And again, it speaks to the complexity of humans to have more than one feeling at a time. Um, Just because I got pleasure from the fact that, you know, Cosby got caught, that Cosby, like, now people understand (laughs) to some extent what happened, it doesn't mean that I'm excited that he's in the criminal justice system.
2: Yeah, I have to admit, like, true confessions... I am glad that he's in the criminal justice system, not because I think the criminal justice system is awesome or fair, quite the contrary, but because I'm glad he's facing some kind of serious consequence. Like, do I wish that there were more better options and that he was facing one of those? Sure. But like, in the meantime, also I am glad.
1: Exactly. And that's what I'm, that's what I'm saying. Like, it's a very legitimate response to be like, yes. But if people have a very, I think superficial understanding or just, feel like that relief and that's it i would i would always invite people to think a little bit harder and and see you know what else is part of this conversation what are the other dimensions of this issue that maybe we're not considering and and to deepen the discourse i guess
2: what do you think about people who say who like police each other's reactions which you know when i say that i think of course policing each other's reactions is bad but then i see people be like we should not be giving, you know, like what about when people say like no are no platforming? Like Woody Allen should not have a platform. I like what you're talking about about sort of like everyone's got to figure it out for themselves and whole and sort of live in the complexities of who we are and where we're all located, right? But at the same time, there are certain individuals who, There seems to be, at least in certain social contexts consensus about. And if somebody steps outside that consensus, there's policing of that, right? Like, you're still, you know, promoting Cosby's work. Like, do you not know what the fuck is going on with Cosby? You know, I see that happening and I don't emotionally, I don't feel bad about that when that happens, right? But I wonder if I should, right? Like, it's one thing for me to say, like, I can't with Cosby. And it's another for me to say nobody should with Cosby.
1: I don't think that there has to be tolerance for intolerance, basically. So I am excited when people who are espousing, you know, racist, sexist, whatever ideals get shut down. That makes me joyous. And the other thing I think about in those situations is who else can we uplift instead? It has to be like a pro and con list or like a checks and balances situation where we're trying to figure out how much good do I think this person can make versus how much negative impact will they have? Um, And, you know, if I feel like they're going to do more harm than good, then I'm not going to give them a platform. So, you know, there were folks here in Boston who were protesting against Bill Cosby coming to speak at the Wilbur Theater. And that. You know, that happened because it was in our own community. And we didn't want this person to come speak in our community. And that's just a a strategic and super old school form of social change. It's just putting pressure on the person to change.
2: And I agree with it. And I've actually supported and used it in uh, in places. But also we need to be judicious about it, too. What you need to think about, like, patterns and, and sort of, like, impacts and not just sort of like this person said one thing fucked up that one time. For sure. But then I feel like, well, who am I to say where the line is? And like, I don't know. I just feel so messy about it.
1: And it, and it is messy. And that's kind of wh- I, what I think is really difficult about this discussion here and elsewhere is that there's no one answer.
2: No, I want you to give the answer.
1: <laughs> I don't have enough power. I wish I did. Uh, but that's that's what's so messy and really taxing about these conversations is that there is no like – guidebook and there's no, well, if A, then B, if B, then C. We all have to figure it out for ourselves. And a lot of that involves such deep and uncomfortable self-reflection of what we value and who we value that a lot of people just don't do it because it's so uncomfortable. And so what I'm inviting is discomfort. What I am inviting is deep self-reflection that a lot of us might hate to do. And, the, and and to deal with ambiguity. And I will be the first one to say that I am a Ravenclaw. I hate ambiguity because I would like everything to be neatly nested in a spreadsheet <laughs> and color-coded. So this is really challenging for me, too, and, and how how we talk about it. Because I'm like, oh, I wish there was just an answer. Like, two plus two is four. Right. Cool.
2: Right, because we're holding sort of two different ideas. One is sort of like we have to leave room to, like, respect people's humanity and leave room for them to grow and change and invite them to grow and change and step further into leadership and, and understanding. And sometimes people deserve to be no platform, right? Like,
1: and those, those two things are intention for me. They and they are. And I think part of what makes it easier is to remember that even though those things are intention, we can still, you know, do the do the tactic that feeds us more and no that there will always be a counterpoint. Maybe not if you're talking with like five friends, maybe you'll all have the same opinion, but as you get larger and larger and you start zooming out, there's always going to be someone that has a different perspective and they will be able to manifest that. And I would add to that, like, maybe in some instance,
2: somebody's coming to your school or, you know, even if it's just about, should you be a fan of so-and-so? Like some people are going to be like, absolutely not. And some people are going to be like, you know, what they did was fucked up, but... Also, I appreciate, you know, like like we were talking about with David Bowie. Also, I think about their contributions, right? I think the best we can do is not have those two factions war. I'm not saying like when people are super defensive and like, how can you say a bad thing about my fave? Fave is perfect. But that there are di- that everyone's going to bring a different tactic and that that has to be OK at some point.
1: Exactly, and that the tactics often support each other, and and certainly sometimes they will undermine each other in certain ways, but that to make social change, we do need multiple strategies. What I would say to people who are listening is, what tactic makes your soul sing? What tactic feels good to you and that you feel you can make the most change with? Align yourself with that, but also leave space for people to have a different tactic.
2: Right, as long as they're acknowledging the problem people are going to respond differently and there has to be room for that.
1: Exactly, cuz you're not again, your tactic will not cover everyone and it will alienate some people. You know, you have people in in you know, Black Lives Matter who are disrupting traffic or like quote unquote disrupting traffic who are doing, you know, acts of civil, you know, disobedience and that really rubs some people the wrong way. So that tactic won't speak to that community, but it'll speak to another one. And for the communities that are really upset about protests, the lobbying will help and, you know, other strategies will speak more to them. And because we live in a society that has so many different communities and points of view, all of those tactics are important because they're all tapping into different pockets of the communities.
2: Amen. That seems like a great place to leave it. But let's not leave it on the podcast. I'd love to continue the conversation on Facebook and Twitter using the unscrewed hashtag and talk about all of your responses. Who are your problematic faves that you struggle with? Right. And and how are you coming to terms with that or not coming to terms with that? You know, let's all talk about it. Use the hashtag unscrewed and we will be in on that conversation.
1: Ida, where do people find you on Twitter and Facebook? On Twitter, I am Neuron Bomb. And on Facebook, uh, there's a page with my name on it. So A-I-D-A-M-A-N-D-U-L-E-Y.
2: Awesome. And I am Jacqueline F., J-A-C-L-Y-N-F, as in Friedman, in both places. But you don't have to use our handles if you don't want to. You can just use the hashtag and we will pop in.
1: All right. Where can people find your stuff in general? Yeah. So I have a website. I keep it simple. So www.aidamanduley.com. And if you just Google my name, I'm pretty much the only one with my name. So it's really easy and upsettingly easy to find me on the internet. (laughs) Not
2: for my listeners. (laughs) You should not be upset with them finding you on the internet, I hope. No, not at all. Awesome. And folks can find me also at JacquelineFriedman.com. Friedman Friedman is F-R-I-E-D-M-A-N. You can find past shows there as well as the archive of my old podcast, The Yes Means Yes Show, uh, as well as upcoming speaking engagements I have and other writing and media appearances and all of that good stuff. Um, please, please also get in touch uh, and tell me what you think of the show. You can send emails to unscrewed at JacquelineFriedman.com uh, I want to hear your advice questions for me and a future guest to help you out with your sex and sexuality related stuff. I want to hear your your ideas for future shows or future guests. Uh, I love hearing from listeners. You can also uh, rec- record audio of yourself just on your phone and send me that file, and then we could maybe feature that on a future show. Would love that. Um, you can download this show at Acast and Stitcher and iTunes and basically everywhere that podcasts are given away for free because they're not sold. Um, And if you like this show and you want other people to be able to discover it, please give us ratings and reviews on those platforms. That's how um, those platforms know which shows to promote. So if you want other people to find the show, please give us some stars. Thank you. Uh, This show, Unscrewed, is produced in collaboration with the fantastic Katie Tandy, creative director for The Establishment and edited by yours truly. Our cover art is by Nicole Donna, and our in and out music is by The Pink Tiles. And until next week, I'm wishing you safe and happy sex lives.